great verses there highlighted in that video to remind us of uh, the trials and the suffering that Job went through. Before I start, I just want to mention next the service next week in the park. Um, if you've never been to North Hills before and you have no idea what a cream can dinner is, did we even mention that that's what we're having? Yes, that's what we're having. Um, we're going to meet down in the park at 10 o'clock. Bring a, an easy up or a canopy or chairs. There's lots of shade with trees, though there's a few less trees now than there was before they cut a couple of them down. Um, we will start at 10. Uh, our worship team will be there. We'll have the message. Uh, after the, the service, we'll migrate over into the swimming pool and we'll do our baptism. We've got at least six so far that are going to be baptized this coming Sunday. And then um, by then, the guys and gals will have the uh, cream can dinner cooked. Uh, we just ask that, that you bring a salad or dessert. Now, if you're under the age of 20 and you're not married, you're exempt from that. Don't bring anything, just bring yourself. Um, it, it will, there will be plenty of food. Uh, it's always a great time of celebration, and uh, we hope that you will join us for that. Uh, and we're going to finish, finish completely the book of Job. We'll be covering the epilogue in the park next week. And so you can read that, I think, in your, uh, in your handouts this morning. There's a for further study that uh, may or may not encourage you to read. Actually, I think I said read the whole second half of the book of Job, um, but anyway. You know, Job's story is a lot like our stories, isn't it? Uh, on the one hand, our stories are long and complex. Job's story was long and complex, and there are lots of ups and downs, and, and when it comes to our understanding of humanity, both in Job's time and in our own, suffering is a reality. Suffering is a reality, an everyday fact. We all will, if we haven't already gone through, go through times of suffering. And, and there are countless philosophical attempts to understand the, the roots of evil and righteousness in our world as we travel along our journey of life. And, and even with the doubts and questions and struggle, we're also given many, many insights into the desires of our hearts and our understanding of people as we go through life. Our need to be heard and seen as we are and to be comforted in our losses. That's a reality. We, we experience hard things and we want people to travel that same journey with us. And at the same time, just as Job's story is long and complex, it is also profoundly simple. After experiencing the attacks of an unknown to him enemy, Job ultimately wanted to know that God was real and that God was in control. He wanted to be assured that somehow and in some way, everything was going to be okay in the end. Man, don't we feel that every day? I just need assurance that somehow, some way, at the end of it all, it's going to be okay. There was a little boy, he wanted to meet God, and he knew it was going to be a long trip from where he lived and to where God lived. So he packed his suitcase with Twinkies and a six-pack of root beer, and he started on his journey. When he had gone about three blocks, he met an old man. He was sitting in the park just staring at some pigeons, and the boy sat down next to him and opened his suitcase. He was about to take a drink of his root beer when he noticed that the old man looked hungry, so he offered him a Twinkie. He gratefully accepted it, and he smiled at him, and his smile was so pleasant 
that the boy wanted to see it again, so he offered him a root beer. Again, the old man smiled at him. The boy was delighted. They sat there all afternoon eating and smiling, but they never said a word. As it grew dark, the boy realized how tired he was, and he got up to leave, but before he had gone more than a few steps, he turned around, he ran back to the old man, and he gave him a hug. He gave him his biggest smile ever. When the boy opened the door to his own house a short time later, his mother was surprised by the look of joy on his face. She asked him, what did you do today that made you so happy? He replied, I had lunch with God. But before his mother could respond, he added, you know what? God's got the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. Meanwhile, the old man, also radiant with joy, returned to his home. His son was stunned by the look of peace on his face. And he asked, Dad, what did you do today that made you so happy? He replied, I ate Twinkies in the park with God. However, before his son responded, he added, you know, he's much younger than I expected. <laughs> you know, God shows up, shows his presence all around us every day, doesn't he? Uh, in so many different ways, sometimes in the life of a person, sometimes in the vision of some stars, God shows us his presence all around us. And, and we just need to look and listen. You know, and like Job, we all want to know that our God is real and that he is in control. I know I do as I navigate a world full of suffering and hardship and a, full, a world that's full of oppression and suppression by the enemy. Job's story, as we have worked our way through it over the summer, shines a light on the most important truth that we can understand amidst this present darkness that we live in. And it is this, that God is real. God is in control. He loves us. And therefore, we can trust him completely. We can trust him completely. Last week, Pastor Michael did a great job summarizing the first 18 chapters of Job. He reminded us that God knows and loves his children, those who have surrendered their life to him, that humanity needs a mediator. Uh, who is, of course, who? Jesus. Uh, Pastor Michael reminded us that just like the shepherd and King David exemplifies for us, it is appropriate to express our emotions and feelings to God in a genuine way. Pouring out our hearts to God is one of the most cleansing and restorative things that I think we can do. And then finally, that there is great value in repentance. That is, in fact, where our relationship with Jesus begins, isn't it? In humility, we believe all that is true about Jesus God with us, our Emmanuel, and our rescuer, and our referee, and our what? Our redeemer. We repent of our attempts to run our own lives, and all of the sin and disobedience that goes against Jesus' commands and wills for us. We repent of that. Man, you know, sin sure gets in the way, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It gets in the way of all things. Who we are created to be, who we are created to be with, and who we are created to serve and worship. Last Sunday, Sarah and myself went to Cheyenne to uh, attend church with our son, Zach. And uh, 
the speaker, who wasn't their regular speaker, I mean, I guess I didn't know that last Sunday was the National Pastor's Day Off. Um, that always happens. You know, you go to a church and you're like, man, I really want to hear that. I want to really hear this pastor. I've heard about him and, and it's not him. Um, now, it was equally good. They, they packed in a child dedication, a baptism, and a special speaker in the same service. Um, it was really good. It was really good. And, and the speaker talked about something that Pastor Brandon has taken our youth through and that we've kicked around here on many occasions, and that is the fact about where, our, where does our identity come from? Where does our identity come from? Uh, having been created in the image of God and deemed not just good along the way at the end of creating man, God said it is very good. That, that his creation was very good, containing his image and his very breath and given a purpose and a mission by God himself as part of our identity and a, and a major part of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, their image, we were created for relationship. We've been created for relationship. And he also talked about how relationships, man, they're just hard. Every one of them. Our relationships with our friends growing up, our relationships with our teachers and our professors and, and our moms and our dads and our brothers and our sisters. Relationships with people in our church. Relationships are hard. All of them. And one of our core identities that we were created for relationship is also one of the hardest. Why? Why is something that we were created for so hard? Why is it so hard? Well, the easy, simple answer for that this morning is because we are influenced by the spiritual battle that rages on around us every day. You see, Satan doesn't want you to have a good relationship with anyone. He doesn't want you to have a good relationship with anyone. Um, that person sitting next to you or across from you or behind you, they are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. Though sometimes we're led to believe that they are. They are not. But who is? Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, that spiritual battle manifests itself in our relationships. The enemy is accusing and lying and deceiving. Sin and the enemy are so insidious that we can live with blind spots even without knowing it. Tony Evans, I came across this quote this week. Since Satan can't remove a believer's salvation, he will try everything he can to keep a believer from experiencing all the good there is to experience in the spiritual realm. And because we are gullible to his temptations and lies and because his sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, suffering and brokenness are a part of God's creation has been since the Garden of Eden. At least will be until the time God sees fit to send Jesus once again for that final judgment. 
and when God gives us a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, until then, we live, we walk, we surrender, we worship, and we proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, as you can see in your notes there, I too will be highlighting four truths from the second half of the book of Job. These are um, from Job 19. On And if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 19. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Well, a lot, actually. Mostly in the book of Job. Job chapter 19. Verses 25 and 26. And it is amazing that Job uttered these words. As Bob said, Job didn't have the benefit of of what we have right here, what Jesus did, what has been testified that he did, what has been shown to be true. But Job utters this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. You see, our first truth this morning is that our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives, Job proclaimed. Now, in the Hebrew culture, a redeemer was typically a family member who was willing to pay a price in order to secure another person's freedom. So that's probably what Job was thinking of, was the general Hebrew understanding of what a redeemer is. That's what Boaz did for Ruth, if you're familiar with that amazing uh, set of events. Um, Though Ruth was a Moabite, a foreigner, she had surrendered herself to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who was headed back to her homeland after losing her husband and sons. You see, there had been a, been a, a, a famine in their land. They moved to Moab in order to live and survive. While there, uh, their children... Their two boys got married to foreign women. Then both husbands die. Naomi's husband dies. And all of a sudden, it's Naomi and these two daughter-in-laws. And when she decided to return to Bethlehem, she encouraged her boys' wives to return to their families. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, 15, verses 15 through 17 say this, look said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What kind of commitment is that? I'm I'm not even sure commitment like that exists in our culture today. I pray that it does, but I mean, she sacrificed all that she knew to go with her in-law to Bethlehem. And when they returned to Bethlehem, Boaz, a relative on Naomi's husband's side, comes into the picture. And a string of what we like to refer to around here is just so happens occur in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And you can see the very hand of God in their life. 
we can see the very hand of God in our own lives if we just look. Ruth goes out to try and find some food and she just so happens to end up in one of Boaz's fields. And, and then we have sacrifice and generosity on Boaz's part. Boaz, in that sacrifice, becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He purchases the land that was her former husband, well, that was her husband's. But in purchasing that, he also has to be willing to marry Ruth in order to completely redeem the family. Um, they were lost and alone without Boaz. They were not going to survive. You just didn't, as, as women in that culture, left on your own. You had to have help. And, and that's who Boaz became. They really had no hope until he made that sacrifice. You see, first in line to be the kinsman redeemer turned it down because he didn't want to marry Ruth. He wasn't willing to make the sacrifice sacrifice in order to redeem them and and that is an incredible testimony of God's work and redemption. Job was voicing confidence that God would eventually step in on his behalf and redeem him, redeem his integrity because his three friends have been tearing it down ever since they uh, that 7 days of silence. Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad berated Job for being guilty of some great sin in his life. And Job fully believed that God would intervene on his behalf and declare him free of serious wrongdoing. Job was not perfect, as we see later in the book. But we do know that he eventually does see that God can be trusted and that God has all things under his control even when we don't understand or have answers. Time and time again, we see the scarlet thread of Jesus in the Old Testament. Every book, every page of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus Christ coming. And I believe Job's statement here is no exception to that. Job's words, though, he may not have understood completely how his life was going to be an example later for us. His words are a powerful prophecy that point to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Jesus sacrificed for us. He gave up so much to become our Redeemer. Romans 8, 31 to 39 says this, What then shall we say in response to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, and he went through as much suffering as anyone else in his life. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is truth. Not even the evil actions of our enemy, the devil, and all those who follow him can separate us from the love of God. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I hope that you wrote down that Romans 8, 31 through 39 passage in your notes to reread and reread and reread. And here's another one that's just as descriptive in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 42 through 58. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven, as was the earthly man. So are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your life, you are only flesh. You are flesh with a lost spirit. But... If you bear the image of the heavenly man, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You know that verse? That verse used to be posted on the door up there in the balcony of the nursery. Cracked me up every time. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Isn't that true of all of us? In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This is a quote from Isaiah. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is the imperishable. There is the second man. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that you labor, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me read that again. Verse 58. Therefore, Paul says, why, why is the word therefore? There. Because of what Paul just said. And, and, and all of that being true in my life, therefore, Paul says, as a brother and a sister, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As Job continues his declarations throughout the second half of his book about his past life, he brings up, a diff he brings up different ways that he has lived his life to honor God in, in an effort to justify himself. But also, I think, as a reflection of the fact that we should never weary, weary of, of doing good of seeking righteousness. The, the second truth I want to remind us of this morning is that people are right to value righteousness. Man, do people in our culture today value righteousness? In chapter 31, if you still kept your finger in the book of Job, or it's pretty quick to jump back to, in chapter 31, Job says, he made a covenant with his eyes to avoid lustfully looking at another woman and he uses shocking descriptions of, of what he's willing to endure if he were to break that covenant that he makes with his eyes. And then in Job 31, verses 21 and 22, he says, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. Job valued living righteously a great deal. It was important to him. We too ought to value righteousness, which seems to be valued less and less every day in our world. That's our enemy hard at work. Insidiously tempting and convincing people that doing good is overrated. And then it doesn't really bring good things to your life. I mean, I've never, underst I've never understood criminals. You know, you watch lots of shows and you're like, how, that was just a dumb thing to do. How on earth did you think you were going to get away with that? I, yet every day, men and women decide that there's a, there's a way to cut a corner, a way to get rich quick, a way to have all the fun with no consequences. I mean, every day. And then before we get too self-righteous, did you return that thing that they sent you three of? 
Maybe they didn't notice. Did you return the overchange that the cashier at Taco John's gave you? Or did you just consider it a gift from God? As opposed to a mistake that they made that they're going to end up paying for at the end of the day when they try to balance their till. We all have blind spots. And that's our enemy hard at work. Tempting us and convincing us that that God can't be trusted because all, all he wants to do is ruin our fun. God has warned us about this happening. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It can often seem if God, as if God has unrealistic expectations of us. How, have you ever uttered the words, I'm only human? Why did you say those things? As an excuse? Some some attempt to justify something that you did that was wrong. But see, God never asks us or commands us to do anything that he doesn't always also provide us the power and ability to accomplish what it is he is asking us to do. He gives us the power to follow and obey. Now, we may not rely on that power and therefore fail, But it is always available, and and may we never weary of doing good. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But see, we jump jump ahead. We we live in such a quick, quick fix, quick whatever culture that that if I do something good and I don't see a return in that in the next day or two, maybe maybe I'll do that again, maybe I won't do that again. No, at the proper time, if we don't give up in doing good, there's a therefore again, as we have opportunity, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Let us do good to all people. And then Paul says, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So it's not only the family of believers, but especially, of course, but also everyone else. Now, one way we read in the New Testament that we can continue to do good is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I just blacked that out of my Bible because I, no, I'm kidding. But I mean, we would like to, right? That's hard. That's hard to do. Bless those who, who persecute you. Bless those who lie about you. Bless bless those who talk about, about you behind their back. Bless those who have treated you unjustly. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. How many of you have cursed at somebody, not actually calling out a curse on them, but have cursed somebody because of something they did to you? That's not doing good. That's not seeking righteousness. Hard to practice. But when we humble ourselves before God, as Job eventually did in the end of his suffering experience, it is a form of worship. And and it furthers the good news of the gospel because our neighbors, I think they notice that kind of stuff. When they see somebody treating you badly and you don't 
you don't react in a revengeful way. They notice that. They notice that. They especially notice it if it's against them. If it's towards them. How we are being transformed from the inside out. This righteousness, is, it's pleasing to God. Uh, John Piper states this. He says, this righteousness is precious to God and is in fact required not as the ground of our justification, okay? Um, good works. I had this conversation with a couple gentlemen in white shirts and ties last week. Obedience and righteousness is good. God wants us to and we should. But we don't obey and, and, be, and try to work at being righteous because we think somehow that earns us a higher place with God or salvation. It is required as evidence of our being truly justified children of God. This is what Paul prays for and we should pray for in Philippians chapter 1 verses 10 through 11, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May we all daily not only understand the value and importance of righteousness in our daily living, but may we work at it. May we grow in the skill of being patient with someone who is cursing at us. May we grow in our strength to not retaliate and may we pray for our enemies to grow in our ability to be patient and full of mercy and grace towards other people who have different lifestyles and views about all kinds of different things. I'm not saying agree with them or go along with or approve, but pray and listen and try to understand how they got where they're at. And then testify and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are right to value righteousness. A third truth that we uh, have learned is that anger rarely helps solve a conflict. You're probably going, oh yeah, that's true. I hope you're saying that. Job 32, verses 2 and 3. But Elihu, when he comes onto the scene, this fourth guy, son of Barakel, the, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. I mean, he was just angry. He expresses his anger towards Job for continuing to justify himself and not admitting to some major sin that Job actually hadn't committed. And he's, he's angry at the other three men for failing to prove that Job was wrong. Elihu's speeches and responses are born out of anger. They, they, they find their beginning in anger. And his voice, I think, gets louder and louder. If you watch the punctuation in his speeches, it goes from commas and periods to exclamation points. I don't know if the translators could or, or would, but maybe... You know, there, there, there might even be two exclamation points. Or, or if, if this was in, 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 
in the way that we text today, all caps. Nobody likes to get one of those messages. Why are you yelling at me? Oops, sorry, I had my caps lock on. Didn't realize it. You know, it's, we can miscommunicate so well via text message, can't we? I asked somebody a question the other day, and I said, is it this or is it this? And they said, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Huh? Um, you know, you can't see their face. You can't see the wink in their eye. You know, you can kind of do that with emojis, which is why they created emojis so that you can kind of try and help show that emotion through that text. Um, now, I, I think I'm a pretty patient guy. I don't think I offend easily. Uh, but, but there are certain places and experiences that can move me away from good, virtuous thinking to oh, thoughts and actions and attitudes that, are, that, that aren't good. I can... I think sometimes become snarky and passive aggressive. Um, I'm learning and I'm growing in this area always, but my wife and a few other people can testify to the fact that I have definitely failed in this area. Um, some of you know about this, some of you don't. Pizza Hut apps, Walmart lines and checkers, though it wasn't their fault, it was something else. Card games, basketball games, okay, just about any game where there's competition involved and I'm losing desperately and the other two people are cheating. <laughs> you brought up risk. My wife and I about got divorced right at the beginning of our marriage when we played Risk with Rob and Bonnie Randolph. And the two ladies decided to forge an alliance, which I don't think is very legal in Risk. Yeah, well... Well, I certainly didn't have any hope in that one. I lost badly. But see, look, that's... I don't say that as... We can't admit to things like that as an excuse to continue just to be the way that, that we were. You know, we gotta take that next step that says, you know what, next time this happens and I feel wronged by a referee, I am not gonna yell negative things. I mean, I, it's a declaration that I wanna grow so I never hear the words, I can't believe how you act sometimes which my wife said to me in the parking lot of the Walmart, or I thought you were a pastor, which I've heard at a basketball game before. Solomon gives us some of the wisdom God granted him in Proverbs chapter 15, verse one. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Words matter today. Well, they always have, actually. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 4, 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of, of malice, except for those that you can justify. No, he doesn't say that. He says, get rid of it all. Get rid of it all. See, destructive anger has no place in the kingdom of God. 
And, and I think 99% of what we see on planet Earth is just that, destructive anger. You know, the Bible talks about righteous anger, and I'm not sure any of us can fully actually have that. Um, we need to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we repent of the destruction of our anger less and praise and worship God more. And grace that comes from our lives on a daily basis. Our Redeemer lives. People are right to value righteousness. Anger rarely. I mean, I say rarely because there may, there's always an exception to some things, right? Rarely solve a conflict. And our final truth is this. God himself is the answer to the question of suffering. God himself is the answer. The critical question at the heart of Job's story is why does suffering exist in the world? Yet as we have seen, that question is not answered. Not even by God himself. We are shown sources for suffering. Uh, sometimes we experience tragedy because of Satan's attacks. That's a reality. That could be the source of the suffering. That is certainly the case in Job's uh, story. We know that for a fact. But there's also other times when we suffer because we're being disciplined for, by God for sin. Because God straightens us out. He, he does not spare the rod. Sometimes we suffer because God wants to get our attention. We're all self-absorbed and doing our own thing and not paying attention or listening to the voice of God. And he needs to wake us up. Sometimes we suffer as a, as a direct result of someone else's sinful choices. There is no universal answer to or cause of suffering. And that response, uh, but there is a universal response to suffering. Did I say that right? There is no universal answer to or cause of suffering, but there is a universal response. And that response is to trust God. It's to trust God. Job's story reveals that suffering and tragedy are re real. I don't need to tell you that. You are likely experiencing that today. Suffering is real. We live in a universe that was created by a sovereign, wise, and all-powerful God. We are connected to that God because he loves us and desires to reconcile us to himself. And he made that possible through our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. So no matter what, no matter what we experience in this life, we can leave the question of why in the hands of God and simply trust that he is in control. That doesn't deny the pain of suffering. That just says I may not ever find out the reason why this suffering occurred in my life. You know what? That's okay. Because I can still stand on the truth that my God is good, that he is great, he is in control. So let's trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering rather than trying to figure out the reasons for it. 
Because when we search for reasons, we tend to, simp- to either simplify God like Job's friends did, or like Job, accuse God based on limited evidence. What did Job ultimately say in the end? Oh, I, I said too much. I spoke of things I didn't know. Let's honestly bring our pain and grief to God and trust that he cares and that he knows exactly what he's doing because he is real and he is in control. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this book and, and God giving all, God, it's just so good to see everybody today and thank you for bringing them here. And, and I know, I trust, Holy Spirit, you have taken the words that you've given me this week and you've applied them specifically, pointedly in every person's heart, every person's mind. God, help us to just trust. God, some people call it blind faith, but that isn't the reality. We have so much evidence and truth and we have this love letter that you've given us and you've described yourself and and we have your presence with us, your Holy Spirit who is working and living in each one of us who are Christ followers. Father, maybe there's somebody here who's never surrendered their life to you. They've never believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that, that he died and that he rose again, that he's alive today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help them to take that step of faith and and believe. They would surrender their life, that they would repent. Help all of us, God, to to this week to to, uh, seek good, to work at righteousness, and and to recognize that, that you give us the power to be good. Help us to listen. Help us to follow you. Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next, to this fall and this winter, the, the series that you've lined up for us and how you're just going to continue to grow us and help us walk this journey together as a church. And now we worship you with this final song in Jesus' name. Amen.